0: and Marble at Princeton a few years ago, and Jean Bovin joins us today. What was it like to go in front of your PhD advisors at Princeton? Who were those guys?
1: Uh, ben Bernanke, Mike, Michael Woodford, Mark Watson. Uh, <laughs> Mark Watson was my main advisor. Um, that was, uh, was, uh, was a great moment. Um, I would not have remembered the title if you had not said it, so thanks for bringing that up.
0: No, it's very very cool. I mean, to have Bernanke moving one way on economics and Michael Woodford with the mathematics on the other side must have been intimidating. Is that kind of brain power going to show itself at Jackson Hole this year? Are we going to dovetail the mathematics of Woodford with the more holistic economics of Bernanke at Jackson Hole, John?
1: Uh interesting. Uh to be honest, uh we are we're, we're kind of wondering what will really happen there. Um our view is that there's maybe too much hope that this is going to be a policy-signaling uh, exercise, uh, especially around the taper. So I, I think this might be a disappointment. Um, and uh, maybe returning more to a hardcore kind of like uh, academic input to policymaking, like we that used to be the case, uh, maybe with the Yetis last year with the Framework Review.
2: Jean, based on your tenure at the Bank of Canada, based on your experience with central bankers and having them as colleagues, do you think that they're concerned by how much control they have, or perceived control by markets, over not only benchmark rates but just risk appetite in general?
1: Um, concern, I'm, I'm. 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 thinking they're pretty aware of. Uh, you know, central. Uh, central banking has been in the front stage uh, for since 2008. Uh, we only game in town, so I think they've gotten used to the attention and uh, the center role that they're playing. I think this is uh, evolving, though. Um, and uh, in our view, like fiscal policy is, is now taking the, the baton from uh, from them, uh, will be more so going forward. So I think we're in kind of at the juncture where things are changing a bit. Uh, but I think their concern is probably more about like how they communicate around the uh, the current situation. Uh, I think the, 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 the potential for mistake is, is pretty high. We've seen it. I think we're losing a bit of a long term anchor on 10 year yields, for instance. And I think this is largely due to uh, uncertainty around the central bank um, you know outlook.
2: We're losing a long-term anchor on 10-year yields. Elaborate, please. What does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, I think when you look at the price movement from uh, the last two months, right, we went from pricing inflation fears uh, with uh, 10-year yields that were on the way up to what we see now is a complete disconnect between the macro outlook uh, and, uh, you know, the movement we've seen in yields. Um, you know, various explanations for that, technicals and so on, but I think one of them is... Um, You know, a big debate around what the central bank is actually doing. Uh, Markets trying to digest that, the new framework. And I think that's part of the story there.
0: Jean, I I look at the the entire economics right now and the word that we keep talking about here between John, Lisa and me, and we make jokes about it, but it's really serious microeconomic foundations, which is the ambiguity of what's going to happen. Given a given thrust in inflation, what's the key ambiguity of which way the financial system cuts, given higher inflation. What's the key mystery? Well, I think, I think uh, Tom, this is exactly, uh,
1: you know, what I think is very unusual about the current situation is that the range of uh, outcome that we are contemplating collectively, be it on inflation, be it on what the central banks will be doing, be it even on growth, What is it a restart? Is it uh, the beginning of a longer kind of, you know, expansion? this is a pretty wide range of, uh, of outcome. And I think the markets in, in those environments tend to interpret the news flow and then go from one kind of uh, potential outcome to the other. Uh, and, and these are more like binary kind of outcome and that creates like the volatility we're seeing. It, I think, I think what, where there's consensus is that this is a pretty constructive environment for risk. Uh, we're seeing that in equities, of course, um, we are pro-risk, uh, we are lucky to be pro-risk at this stage. So that is kind of consensus, but from here, uh, on an unusually wide range and I think um, we're going right. we're facing binary outcomes.
0: John Farrow has led our discussion here of stock and flow and I would suggest when we look at the debt the deficit is a static object it's a bathtub that's the size of an Olympic pool should be should we be worried about the stocks the size of the pool that's built up of these things we worry about yeah, I think I think uh, there's been uh, we, we've left the stock a bit out of the picture, but
1: like if you if you just take a step back and look since COVID, uh, the amount of spending that has been like put on the table, uh, including with the infrastructure bill this week and the rec- reconciliation we're going to see um, now going forward, we're talking about like amounting a total of 43 percent of GDP and new spending that you know we didn't we didn't have pre-COVID. Uh, that's a large amount. That's your stock point. Um, we are comfortable or, uh, you know, pretty relaxed about this, uh, given the rate uh, outlook we're seeing, but I think we're much more now uh, subject and, uh, and we're, we're facing a fragile environment where if, if there are adjustment in rates, uh, it's going to be a lot more disruptive with the stock. Uh, much larger now.
2: Jean, before we let you go, Dean Kurnit on the show earlier said that the inflation is contained is the same as subprime is contained of today, that basically uh, this is a faith-based assertion that is yet to be proven and really goes to your call about the question marks underpinning where treasury yields are today. Do you agree that inflation is controlled is the same kind of view as subprime is contained of 2007-2006?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's even more than subprime because uh, inflation is, uh, in my view, in our view, a purely self-fulfilling phenomenon ultimately. So it's what we what we believe or markets believe it to be. Uh, and I think we are seeing the the, the the elements for inflation to to break out to our level. We think it's going to be contained, ultimately. Uh, that's still the kind of our baseline, but that's not a given. Uh, that's far from a given. An episode in the past where inflation got out of hand. I mean, we're not expected, uh, you know, before they happen. So I think that's a, that's a fair. I would I would I would have sympathy for that point, and I think this is underappreciated as a risk.
0: Jean Bovin, thank you so much. Greatly greatly appreciate it this morning with BlackRock. There really really informed discussion there, folks, and some of the dynamics uh, that we see right now.
3: Dean Cutter, a Macro Risk Advisors, founder and CEO. Dean, the complacency, the complacency of us to start a program like we have done, start this hour like we just have, look through all-time highs, 47 of them year to date on the S&P 500. And it just seems to me that we're numb. We're numb to any incoming information that tells you otherwise about this bullish story you've created. What does that tell you, Dean?
4: Well, you know, I like the field of dreams exercise. I think it's interesting to take a movie and kind of make it into real life. But I also, in terms of markets, I like taking real events and looking back on them. And it is 10 years to the week that the, I would call it the joint crisis between the Eurozone sovereign uh, episode of 2011 and the US debt ceiling showdown occurred. And for the week of this week, 10 years ago, realized volatility in the S&P was 90, 90%. This week, uh, realized volatility in the S&P is 3.5%. So it just goes to show you the extent to which markets can go from extremely high levels of volatility to, as you're discussing, something that really is a snooze fest. And I think the important part about the snooze fest is it really dulls our imagination. It, it catches us. It, it causes us to be caught off guard. And of course, uh, the linchpin of it all, uh, I know you host your show, The, the Real Yield. Uh, there's not much oh, of that yeah, let's mention that, Dean. Nice right? of you
0: to bring that up.
4: Um, So, you know, everything is linked to a a minus 1.1 to more negative 10-year yield, everything, equity valuations, low levels of volatility. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm I'm very concerned that we're trusting the central banks in a way that, uh, you know, history has proven unkind to that level of trust. I go back to, for example, the early 2007 period. And to me, uh, subprime is contained. Is the inflation is transitory uh, of 2021? These epic misreads by central bankers shouldn't be forgotten. They can cause ultimately cause a right. lot of market harm.
0: Uh, Dean, I want to know how VIX sets here. We had a VIX of 22, 21, whatever, back in mid July, and down we go under 16 today. Tell me what the Greek letters say right now, the co movements of the market say about the oomph to get the VIX down to a true bull market 14, or dare I say 13.
4: Well, as I, as I, as I mentioned, you know, realized volatility around 3.5%. It's almost as if the S&P 500 is a pegged currency, right? And options on a peg are really not worth very much. And so the the gravitational pull, as you call it, in in the VIX is really contingent on not just this low level of volatility, realized volatility, but it's, it's nearly ground to a screeching halt. So, you know, I had the VIX floored at around 17. Obviously, we've breached that. And what causes you to breach it is when you get such shockingly... Uh, low levels of movement. It's it's the quiet. And uh, a lot of folks had forecasted that uh, there would be some fireworks in August. Uh, that that has been, with uh, some regularity, a month where uh, the summer vacation got disrupted. It doesn't look like, at least for now, that that's going to happen right now. So, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> I, I think when I step back, I just try to look at risk reward. And you're right, the equity market's going up. It's not going up a ton, uh, and so, you know, I, I, what I worry about is this d- degree of complacency uh, that, again, it, it's grounded in the the mispricing uh, of nominal yields versus the rate of inflation, where we're really hoping that uh, inflation comes down. It's just very difficult to, to know. And the damage that could result should it not prove transitory and bond yields react ultimately and, and kind of... Push higher on a nominal level.
3: Dean, you're teasing um, us. I just want to make you, get you to make the point. You said something that I will not let pass. You said that inflation in transit is transitory It's the new subprime is contained. That's quite a call. So let's get the conviction call in this market, not the ifs, the buts on the one hand, on the yeah. other. What's the call?
4: I, I think the call is that uh, the, the, the valuation argument that's being made in equities is contingent on something that we just have no idea Around and the data tells us, at least so far, that nominal yields are so far below the rate of inflation uh, that the Fed could be in a very, very difficult spot. If we go back and look at all the risk-offs that, that we've that we've had, and you know, there have been some doozies along the way, the Fed's always been there to assage the market and, and to to lift it higher for for a couple of reasons. One is that market risk and economic risk typically occur at the same time, right? The they typically run into trouble at the same time. And so the Fed in its remit to revive the economy ultimately has these policies with with work, which work more directly on asset prices. But the bigger point, John, is that the Fed's air cover is always that the the, the rate of inflation is below target. So it's allowed to do much. We're in a much different circumstance now. The rate of inflation is well, well, well above target. So if we do run into a risk off, we've gotta be asking ourselves the question, What's the Fed going to do just given that inflation so bar- far above target already?
3: Dean, so, so important. And I'm pleased we got you on the spot on that question. Dean Carnett there a Macro Risk Advisors, the founder and CEO. Tom, that line there, inflation is transitory is the new subprime is contained. That's something to take note of. Well, let's get from New York to Wyoming and bring in Jill Moak, the chief economist at AXA Investment Management. Jill, let's start there. August 26th. Because no one's really interested in August 13th this morning, it seems. <laughs> Gilles, let's start on August 26th. Jackson Hole, what are you looking for from the Fed chairman at that gathering?
5: I'd be, I'd be surprised if we had you know, a sort of formal announcement uh, from, from them or from him, actually, in Jackson Hole, because uh, the last few years, quite a few years, actually, uh, the Fed has tried to tone down the, the importance of, of Jackson Hole in term, when it comes to, to actual policy announcements. It's a place where you debate. It's a place where you lay the ground for your future announcements, but you, you don't use it really to, to be too precise about what you want to do. So my guess is that we have a pretty consensual uh, uh, discussion from everybody from the Fed, of making it clear that, hey, you know, we may still have some, some differences on the exact timing of when we taper. But tapering, we will, and uh, this is this is for the coming months. Uh, plus, uh as a Frenchman, I have trouble putting an S after mm-hmm. th. Um, so yeah, <laughs> consensual, not a lot of, uh, uh, of conversations uh, of dissenters, I would say, because they're all moving in the same direction. If you if you read yeah. the they speak, so probably not much suspense.
0: Jill, define data dependency for us. The theme at Jackson Hole is going to be waiting and waiting and waiting. Define this new data dependency of this new Fed.
5: Definitely, and I don't think that they can answer any precise question at this this stage. Um, Because on tapering, okay, it's a matter of months. On when they would fully normalise monetary policy, i.e., when they would actually start moving rates, they've given themselves a lot of leeway, and this is where uh, I think they will will have to learn by, by by watching them and 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 follow follow their their stride. Because um, before the pandemic struck, honestly, uh, there was no consensus on where. Uh, the natural uh, unemployment rate was in the US. There was no agreement on where the equilibrium interest rate was in the US. It's become even more unclear in this, in this crisis. Well, um, so I, I think they will be extremely pragmatic. And there's, again, not much they can say at this stage on what they intend to do in the next two, three years.
2: Gilles, it's sort of shocking to me. We get equity analyst after equity analyst saying, by this rally. Basically, it's going to keep going up. It's going to go up more than we had previously expected. We have pretty incredibly good data. We're coming out of the labor market, coming out of inflation. Uh, where, you know, If you want to see inflation, if you start to see recovery signs all over the place, why are economists not changing their projections after the past two weeks? Why is this transitory? Why does this fit into everybody's narrative on the eco- economic side if it's not on the equity analyst side?
5: I think well, e- e- economists usually uh, try to 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 focus on on what the fundamentals are telling us, and probably try to take on board what the impact of the beginning of the normalization of monetary policy will mean. At the moment, yes, you're right. The fundamentals are telling a great story. Earnings are doing well. The economy is reopening at a fast clip. Uh, we were very worried about the Delta variant, but it seems that you know. The capacity of the economy to deal with it is higher than we, than we thought, higher than we feared. Still, there is an elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is how is the market going to behave once we start losing this massive uh, 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 constant purchases <coughs> of, of, of risk-free assets and not so risk-free assets uh, from, from central banks. It's not for immediate consumption in Europe, which may explain why... The equity market is doing even better in, in Europe right now. But in the U.S., it's a matter of months. So I guess most economists are trying, to, th- trying to, to, to work the models and start to think, hey, you know, once I take out from the equation those billions of dollars of purchases, where should the market be? And you know, this is probably what makes us a bit grumpy, but you
3: know, that probably comes with the trade. <laughs> Jill, how do you gauge that? Is that just a guess? How do you know how the market will respond? What do you look for? Well, you can try actually
5: to uh, come up with, with you know, economic models which which make sense because we've had actually years and years now of experience of uh, an increase in the size of uh, central banks' balance sheet. We've had years of experience with, with QE. So you can actually, it's not that complicated, you can actually... Uh, 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 Estimate the impact of a change in uh, the balance sheet of the central bank on equity prices. That's not that's not rocket science. The question, though, is that um, what we what is really complicated to uh, uh, to estimate is the psychological impact. Yep. The fact that yep. even if the central bank stops buying, and then the model is going to tell you, hey, you know, that means X percent less on uh, the trajectory for, for risky assets. The problem is that now the market knows that if something goes wrong, central banks are going to act probably faster and in a bigger way than before. So that provides a sort of insurance, sort of flooring to the market. And that's the bit that is really, really hard to, uh, to, to estimate. But the direct impact, yes, you, you can. And there are lots of models which, which
3: do that. The conditioning, Jill, we've got to leave it there. Really great final thoughts. Jill, my work there, of Banks for Investment Management, the chief economist.
0: Dana Telsey, thank you so much for joining us today on the State of uh, Retail. What's the why behind your and Joe Felbin's enthusiasm? What's the oomph that's getting retail to the end of the year?
6: Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. I think the oomph that's getting retail to the end of the year, I think, number one, it's the consumer, the dollars that they have, and the pent-up demand that they have for gathering and hopefully being together in a safe way if if this variant can be controlled. I think the other thing is the innovation that companies have, more new product innovation, and not just in product, but think about also in transaction transformation, whether it's curbside, whether it's digital, the convenience that consumers have is greater than ever. And it's exciting.
0: What's the lesson learned from the pandemic on inventory management? That's so much part of the failure of margins. Is there something that carries over that they all learned about inventory?
6: Reduction in SKUs helps to drive profitability. Managing inventory is key. Can you do more with less? And can you personalize the offering so that you don't have an abundance of goods leading to markdowns? The headwind today is definitely supply chain and getting goods into the U.S. We hear that from company after company, and it doesn't seem like that's going to normalize before the end of the year. So we're going to have tight inventory levels as we go through the second half of the year. How are companies dealing with
2: that, the supply chain issues that they see persisting for a while?
6: Some of the different ways they're dealing with it, they're bringing goods in by air. It's not a cheap way to do things, but it helps to meet demand. And you'd rather not lose the sale and bring goods in that you can sell at a full price. Some of them are transitioning from the West Coast ports to the East Coast ports, but reduction in inventory and hopefully lower inventory levels than we had in the past will lead to a much more balanced promotional environment in the future.
2: As the Delta variant continues to spread, are people overestimating or underestimating the return of brick and mortar?
6: I think basically as the Delta variant spreads, we're continuing to see reopenings recover, physical store footprints encouraging, traffic improving, but conversion is higher than traffic. Consumers are going with destinations in mind and picking up goods. There is certainly a concern that will traffic slow a bit? if we see this Delta variant expand. But now, companies know how to manufacture and to deliver the whole experience with omni-channel. That omni-channel Mm -hmm. customer is more profitable than the single-channel customer.
0: In big box, what's your single best buy, Dana, right now?
6: I mean, look what Target's doing. It's pretty special. And frankly, look what Walmart's doing. I think the big box discounters are capturing more consumers. How long can
2: this consumer boom continue, though, in terms of spending, given the fact that we are seeing prices rise and we are expecting some of the wage increases to start to slow?
6: So when we see the wage increases slow and, yes, prices are rising, we've heard about it in footwear. We've heard about it in other categories, too. Child tax credit is going to be there through the end of the year. And the savings rate is high. I think we're going to see a sustained demand of enhanced spending as we go through the Christmas time period. Is where people are spending, is
2: that changing? I know that we went through the cycle of devices, and then recently we've seen an explosion of people trying to buy clothes that fit them as they try to return to the office. Where are the hot spots right now heading into year end?
6: I think heading into the year end by category, I think apparel is a hot spot. The innovation that you have, whether it's denim, whether it is footwear, and frankly, look at mm-hmm. luxury goods, the strength there has been quite solid. I think the other hot spots that we're gonna be seeing out there. I mean, take a look at off-price. Off-price stores basically weren't open for a significant part of last year. They don't have the digital channel, which would be a a benefit to that also.
0: Dana, Chelsea, one final question. You are a beast of Manhattan in New York City. We all drive around and see the empty stores. How do you react when you see empty stores on 2nd Avenue? on your Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue or way over on, you know, the west side? How do you respond to that? It's
6: depressing. I want to see life. I want to see stores coming back to Manhattan. We are seeing people come back to live in Manhattan. We've certainly seen an uptick in apartment sales and the improvement in Madison Avenue. I'm hearing of an acceleration of some openings on Madison Avenue in this back half of the year. We need the vibrancy to come back to the neighborhoods, even in the Flatiron District, the Harry Potter store opened, but then you have so many closings elsewhere. Tourism will help to bring traffic, the return of work, yeah. even in a hybrid manner, and kids going to school.
0: Dana Telsey, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciated, of course, the Telsey Advisory Group here at Update, their enthusiasm for Mr. Feldman this morning on Walmart and on Target.